0: And Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. We welcome you if you're a visitor here today, Uh, but we have been working our way through Ephesians for about a year now, and we're coming towards the conclusion of Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus, and we are here at the sixth and final piece of the armor, of which the command is to take it up. It's an immediate action. We learned that the first three pieces are long-term. The verb declares that you are to have on the gospel shoes of peace. You are to have on the belt of truth. You are to have on the breastplate of righteousness. And then you take up the shield. You take up the helmet. You take up the sword. We learn through scripture that before coming to faith in Jesus Christ, anyone who is outside of Christ is an enemy of God. No matter how good a person they may think they are, Scripture declares that you are an enemy of God. You may say, "What? I'm not really not. I got no problem with the big man upstairs." The reality is, the Bible says that he's an enemy of you, if you're not in Christ. Peace is made with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ in one coming to faith in Christ through the finished work of Christ on the cross his blood shed for the believer, his righteousness placed on the account of the believer as he took the sin of the new believer, a calvary. Therefore, one who comes to faith in God is no longer an enemy of God, he's a child of God, and he is now the enemy of Satan and unseen forces of evil. Who attempt to attack God's people so that they bring no glory due to God and God alone through a life that bears witness of His goodness, of His grace, and of His power. And because of that reality, it's an unseen reality, God has granted us the whole armor of God so that we may stand and resist the wiles, the tricks, the lies of the enemy. But we have to take up the armor. We have to put on the armor. And if you've missed any of the studies up to this point, you can go to our website and uh, pull up one of those archived messages if you need to catch up or you don't understand one of the pieces or practical application of those pieces of the armor. But today we're in verse 17b. It says, Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's the sword of the Spirit. This is the part of the armor that's the covering of Scripture. Scripture not only is this weapon defensive it is the only piece of weapon that is offensive it's an offensive weapon the metaphor of sword here that paul uses it was a, a shorter sword which we'll learn more about in a few minutes double-edged sword an all-edged sword so that in whatever way it was thrust, thrust or brandished or hurled it would cut it would wound or it would kill. In a swordsman of this day, a soldier of this day, he, he had to be an expert in utilizing this particular sword or he himself would die in battle. It's so likewise, the Christian soldier must learn how to handle the Word of God with precision. Most Christians have difficulty using the Word of God with precision because they don't know what it means by what it says, therefore they constantly quote texts of Scripture out of their proper context. They have no idea how to apply that living active Word of God to their life. Hopefully today we'll grasp a greater understanding of how to do just that. The Christian who uses the sword in the battle of the Lord, as Charles Spurgeon said, and I quote, he may use it upon carnal hopes and then strike back upon unbelieving fears he may smite with one edge the love of sin and then with the other the pride of self-righteousness. It is a conquering weapon in always this wondrous sword of the Spirit of God. End quote. Ephesians 6.17 is the sword of the Spirit. This is God's only sword. It's His sword. He crafted it. He formed it. It's the sword of who? The the sword of the Holy Spirit. It is the He who is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is He. Him. It's the person of God who indwells you if you're a believer here today. The very living God of the universe indwells you if you're in Christ. And this sword, this word is His. Crafted by Him. It's of His authorship. And because... He is the author of it. The Bible makes many great claims of itself. And before we get into the specific study of Ephesians 6, verse 17b, we want to look at some of the claims that the Bible makes of itself. One claim that's been made is that the Bible is sufficient. The Bible is all-sufficient. It's actually breathed out by God Himself. In 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, which means literally, breathed out by God. It was Jesus Christ Himself who prayed to the Father in John 17.17, praying on behalf of those who do believe and would believe. He said, Lord, Father, sanctify them by Your truth. Your Word is truth sanctify means to set apart when you were saved, at that moment you were justified and declared free from all blame of your sin and at that very moment you were also set apart set apart unto holiness set apart as his own cherished possession bought back at a great price a work he began in you then he will complete that work until the day of Jesus Christ sanctifying work the Bible also claims to be infallible Infallible. It's incapable of error in its entirety. Psalm 19, verse 7 says that the law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. The only thing that will convert the soul of any man, woman, or child is the living Word of God. No man, I don't care how crafty he is with his rhetoric and his cute stories, is going to convert anyone. It's the living Word of God alone, which is infallible. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It's perfect, Psalm 19.7 says, which means in its entirety it's made complete in integrity and truth. It is sure. It's to render faithful or firm that you can trust and believe it. So the substance or the sum of it all makes no mistakes. It is infallible. It's totally dependable. Absolutely watertight. It's perfectly reliable to the believer. Unbelievers cannot rely on it because they haven't been birthed or made alive by it. The Bible also claims to be inerrant. It's free from error. It's infallible in its entirety. And it's free from error in all of its parts. Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God is pure. He's a shield to those who put their trust in Him. Do not add to His words, lest He rebuke you, and you be found a liar. It's inerrant. Every word is pure, spoken by God Himself. The Bible also claims to be divine rather than human in origin. How many times do you hear, oh, well, the Bible's written by man. Well, the Bible's written by God. God spoke through men who penned the words. Turn, if you will, to 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. Now the context here, you've got Peter writing this epistle, and he's declaring for us the reality that took place when Jesus walked the earth during his earthly ministry, Peter, James, and John went up the mountain with Jesus in Matthew chapter 17 before their very eyes he trans was transfigured from humanity to glory you can look it up later if you're not familiar with it they saw this transfiguration take place they fell on their faces they heard the voice of God the Father from heaven and they shuddered in fear as one ought so with that in mind 2 Peter chapter 1 beginning in verse, actually we will start in verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made it known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. Now, has anyone in here experienced a greater experience than that? Answer, no. No one has experienced something this grand. So Peter is making sure that we understand that which took place. And he goes on to say this, With all of that, with all of that experience, seeing... Jesus Christ transfigured into glory before our very eyes, hearing the voice of God the Father from heaven. So we have the prophetic word confirmed. In other words, we have something even more sure than that. Something more sure than that? You know what it is? The prophetic word, which you do well to heed is a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. No, no, it's not of any private interpretation. Interpretation means to loosen, to untie. So this is to say that there is no, no, no scripture, rather, that is the result of any human being privately bringing definition or clarity to it. He doesn't untie the truth in his own opinion. This truth is God's truth. It's, it's divine. And the meaning is that which God intended it to mean. The context that has to be made and declared is the context in which he wrote it in the first place. What did he mean by what he said in a particular passage of Scripture? Jump over to chapter 3 of 2nd Peter Peter goes on in verse 14 Now he's talking about the imminent return of Jesus Christ when there'll be a new heavens and a new earth and where all righteousness dwells He says therefore beloved looking forward to these things hopefully we all look forward to those things the imminent return of Jesus Christ when he comes back in his glory the sky is going to roll up like a scroll Looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, and also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. Also, in all his epistles, which are letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. See, the Holy Spirit enables us to understand the text as we exegete the text. Exegesis. It's in, your, it's in your handout, the definition. Exegesis is to explain the text in its proper context. To explain what this text means by what it says. Whereas eisegesis is the interpretation of a text by reading into that text one's own ideas. Very dangerous. That's why you don't want to be in a Bible study where someone reads a passage and they go, Well, what does that mean to you? And then you just give some far-off definition. Well, what it means to me is this. It might not mean that to you, but to me it means this. No, it doesn't matter what it means to you. What matters is, what does it mean by what it says? What did God mean when He spoke these words? That's why we do expository teaching here, verse by verse. We read the text. Read the verse. We explain what it means by what it says. And we use cross-references of Scripture because the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. The Bible also claims to be complete. Revelation chapter 22, in, beginning in verse 18, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, from the things which are written in this book. The only way someone's name can be, quote, taken out of the book of life if it was never in there in the first place. If your name's in the book of life, it's sealed. It's done. People who are apostate, who walk away from the faith, are those who step up to the line of believing because they intellectually believe all the facts of Jesus Christ, that which He's done, and intellectually perceive it, intellectually understand it in their mind, but they never submit their lives and their hearts to that truth. And they walk away. The reason they can walk away is because they were never really in the faith. But the warnings here in Revelation against altering the biblical text represent the closing of the New Testament canon. Anyone who tampers with the truth, they want to attempt to falsify it, alter it, misinterpret it, they'll incur the judgments described in these verses. That's why we take our time. Now, God's grace abounds. I mean, if someone's diligent to give themselves to the study of the Word of God, you're going to make mistakes along the way. <laughs> That's just reality. But someone who takes it to twist it, like false teachers, whew, beware lest many of you become teachers knowing you will receive a stricter judgment. The Bible very clear. But this represents the closing of the canon. So as the Bible claims to be complete, there'll be no new revelation. So if any guy stands at a pulpit and he says, I proclaim the word of the Lord to you, and then he gives you some bizarre teaching, and if it doesn't line up with this, it's not of God. Amen? It's not of the Lord. Many people today on TV profess these, quote, truths. They don't line up with Scripture. They're not of God. It's from the pit of hell. It's complete. We have the Word of God. Anything that's said at any pulpit, test it in light of Scripture. Test all things in light of Scripture. Hold fast to that which is true. The Bible also claims to be authoritative. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. He has spoken. It means to declare, to converse, to command, to promise, to warn, to threaten, and even to sing. God has declared. God has spoken. Jeremiah 13.15 Hear and give ear, do not be proud, for the Lord has spoken. How many of you before Jesus Christ entered your life and transformed you where you were stiff-necked against the truth? Well, that's what it means to you. Stiff-necked. But when the reality of the cross was right in front of your face, what happened to that stiff neck but it bowed into submission? God who spoke. Who speaks? Who's declared? Jeremiah thirteen fifteen again notice it says give ear. Hear and give ear. Probably means to expand, to broaden out the ear with the hand. Take heed. God has spoken. Second Timothy three sixteen says that all scripture is God breathed. So the Bible clearly claims to be authoritative. The Bible also claims to be effective in Isaiah 55, verse 10. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, here it is. so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Now some people say, well, that means everyone's going to be saved. No, it doesn't. Because the Word of God has two effects. To some it hardens. To some it softens to belief. The Lord spoke to Isaiah. He said, He called to His ministry. And He, and he told them in Isaiah chapter 6 that as He preaches, they'll have ears, but they won't hear. They'll have eyes and they won't see. They're going to become calloused and hardened and reject the truth. So it will prosper for what God sent it, in His sovereignty. To some it will harden, to some it will soften, to belief. The Bible is the spring of promise, the and act, the, the actual favor of God. In Proverbs 8, 34, speaking of the wisdom of God, it says, Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the post of my door, for whoever finds me finds life, and obtains favor from the Lord. Anthony read from Psalm 119, 105. The Word of God is actually the light and the power of our direction. Your Word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. The Word is also written for our comfort. Those of us in Christ, Romans 15, 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Hope. Also, the, it's the source of our spiritual growth. Second Timothy 3:17, the word of God is there that the man of God may be a complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. In 1 Peter 2.2, 2, he says, just as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word. Newborn babies desire the milk of their mother. We ought to desire the word of God like a baby desires the milk of its mother in order to grow thereby. A newborn baby all you new moms that baby can be screaming and wailing and dad can be holding that baby and the dad's not going to be doing anything to satisfy the hunger of that baby if it's a nursing baby give it to them all the only thing that will satisfy for the believer should be the only thing that would satisfy us is the pure milk of the word the context here is not foundational doctrine it's just the purity of the milk to the child ought to be equivalent, equivalent to that of the, 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 the hunger the insatiable hunger that a believer has for the word because it's the only thing that will satisfy so it's our source of spiritual growth now back to Ephesians we could go on and on I mean the word is everlasting it's immutable God is unchanging He is the word so the word is unchanging it's an everlasting spoken word of God Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away but my word stand forever unchanging so we could go on, but for the sake of time, back to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. Here the word is the source of victory for the believer, as an offensive weapon against sin, temptation, and as well as the mortification of that sin and temptation, to cut it deep, to cut it out. Now, Paul uses these great metaphors, and here he uses the word of God as a sword. Now it's important that we understand that in the New Testament the Bible speaks of two kinds of swords, two types of swords, and they're in your hand out here. You have the Romphia sword, which is a saber. It was a long, broad sword, thirty six to forty inches long, two hands, hold it over your head, you would throw it around, wail it around like a baseball bat. It's to crush a skull, to take off a head. A long broad sword. The other type of sword was the makaira. Like a knife or a dagger, 6 to 18 inches long, it was attached to the belt. Belt of truth, sword of truth. This type of dagger had to be used in a very specific way to be effective. Because if you're in hand-to-hand combat, you had to know how to use it, you had to know where to place it to bring death to the enemy. The same type of sword that Machairah is also used in Matthew 26:51. If you remember, Peter took the sword when Jesus was being arrested and he lopped off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Obviously not a marked swordsman. Not a master swordsman. I'm sure he was trying to take off his head. He missed. He got the ear. Jesus fixed the ear, put it back together. Or he would have been arrested himself. Peter would have been arrested and probably put to death himself. It's the same type of sword that's used in Acts 12 verse 2 with the taking off of James' head. It was only yay long, but those guys knew how to use it to behead someone. Specific use to be effective. Just as the machaira has to be used in a specific way to be effective, so does the Word of God have to be effective and it is only as effective as is the depth of one's study and understanding of it. Or it won't be effective. We have the two swords down. Because it's the sword of the Spirit, we understand these meaning of these words, of the words word. There's two main uses of the word word in the New Testament. One is logos. It embodies a conception or an idea. God's logos is His divine expression through creation, wisdom, revelation, salvation. It's the whole Word of God, if you will. When we get to John chapter 1, we'll begin our study in in, in verse 1 that says, "...in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. In the beginning was the Logos. The Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. And the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ is the Logos." The Word. The all-encompassing Word. The other word it's used is the rima. Meaning this. A specific statement. A particular Word of God. It, it, it indicates something that is spoken. Spoken or uttered in a speech or some particular thing. It's a p- specific instead of all-encompassing. Romans 10.17 We're all familiar with it. It says, Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. The Greek says it like this, Faith comes by hearing a rhema about Christ. Faith comes by hearing a specific statement about Christ. True saving faith in God through Jesus Christ is communicated with specifics of gospel truth. Not, God is love and God loves you. That's not the gospel. Well, I do love God. Well, He loves you too, so you're good. You're saved. Wrong. <laughs> the gospel has to be preached as it's declared, specifically. All of sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. God's standard to get to heaven? Absolute perfection. Sinlessness. You must meet the standard of God. Perfect sinlessness. You must uphold the Ten Commandments perfectly. Then you get to heaven. But I can't do it. Exactly. You got the bad news down. Here's the good news. The Gospel. Jesus Christ came out of heaven became a human being, met the standard of the Father, took your sin on the cross, the bloody cross, was beaten, brutalized, all of the wrath of the Father because He's holy was unleashed upon His Son. When one puts their faith and trust in Him, they receive all of His righteousness because He bore all of your sin if you're a believer. That's the Gospel in its simplest form. Jesus Christ in the cross. It's Christ crucified. But there's a reason He was crucified. There's a reason. It's because you're a wretched, rotten sinner. You can't meet His standard, and I'm in that club too. Specifics of the gospel of Christ. So in Ephesians six seventeen, the reference here is not the whole Bible as such, but rather the individual scripture, which the Spirit brings to our remembrance for use in time of need. Not generalizations about the Bible. But specifics. You know, it's very interesting, this whole parallel between the two uses of sword and the two uses of word. Okay, think about this. You have the rompia sword, this big, broad sword, and then you have the logos. The big, broad, ever all-encompassing word of God. Then you have the machaira sword. Shorter. You had to use it in a specific manner. Just like the Rima. It's a word or a specific or particular use of the word, verse, thought, whatever. We have to know the specifics of this word to come against the enemy. That's the point. That's the introduction. To stand against the enemy. To specifically stand in opposition to the enemy who will come with lies and deception. So... This sword is to be used defensively. As you already know, it is the only offensive weapon in all of the armor. And we use it to deal with exact, specific temptations that are thrown out by the enemy. We have to strike back with truth when we're personally tempted to do evil. With truth. We're going to see a great example of it in a moment. We have to to force the sword of truth when the church is attacked with false teaching this we have to bring it strong man there's all kinds of false teaching always has been you read these epistles man these men the majority of the fighting and opposition that they faced was from the inside of the professing church we have to lance the blow of worldly opposition and worldliness that attempts to grab hold of us we have to lance the blow with the sword of truth And we have to cut a swath Through worldly philosophies Politically correct ethics Right? Politically correct ethics One day, I'm sure It'll be against the law for me to stand here And preach against homosexuality That homosexuality is a sin That homosexuals, if they're wrapped up in that sin, must repent of their sin and turn to Christ just like someone who's a drug addict, or just like a little old lady who lives down the street who's a good person, and she's never said a cuss word in her life, but she doesn't know Jesus Christ, she's just as guilty. They have to repent of that. One day it may be against the law to preach that. You just wait till I get out, one of the brothers will step up and preach if I'm gone, amen? cut a swath through that garbage. And we have to raise the true sword of the gospel because it's the only sword that will release sinners from their sin. And it's with the true gospel. The specific biblical gospel of truth. Not this nonsense, man, that, I can't tell you who's going to go to hell, Larry. It's It's not for me to judge. But, you know, I just believe Jesus loves us all and you know, I've been to India and and I know those people though they don't serve Jesus, they love God. It's a little quote from Joe Olstein and Larry King Live. <laughs> He's the most popular guy out there right now, so I gotta take the sword to him a little bit. All of these things are to make proper use of God's word in specific situations to make specific use of the Word of God in very specific situations, whether it's a personal attack against you, personal temptations towards you, lies against the church, lies within the church, to use it specifically. Now, these great heroes of faith that pen the words of Scripture, they use the Word of God in a right and proper way. And the greatest illustration of anyone who used the Word of God in the right, proper, specific way in the midst of temptation? Jesus Christ Himself. So we'll look at that together. Luke chapter 4. Jesus' public ministry had just begun. Thirty years of age. He comes onto the public scene to begin His three plus years of public ministry as He set His face as a flint towards Jerusalem, the cross. The fulfillment of His ministry. He comes down to the Jordan. All men, born of women, none greater than John the Baptist. There He was, preaching. Repentance, paving the way for the Savior, paving the way for the Son of the living God. Jesus comes down to be baptized. John the Baptist says, Far be it from me to baptize you, I need to be being baptized. Uh, Far be it from me to baptize you, I should be being baptized by you. Jesus says, Nonetheless, may the Scriptures be fulfilled. Let it be. And then, chapter 4, verse 1, And then... Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days, he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. Make sense, yeah? And then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Well, then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if... You will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered and said to him, It's been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. It's interesting if you read the genealogy just before chapter 4 there. It begins at present and it goes back to the first man, Adam verse 38 son of Adam the son of God then Jesus being filled with the spirit first one to ever be tempted by Satan fell and the consequence of that falling is the consequence that has resulted in us being separated from God and every human being born thereafter after Adam that is with a sin nature. And the Son of God, the Son of Man, comes out of heaven, takes on human flesh, and then Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to what? To be tempted. So what takes place here is absolutely under God's divine plan and authority. Jesus fasted 40 days, He was hungry. He was fully God. He was also fully man. And in His humanity, He was hungry. And if He was hungry after 40 days, He was weary. And if He was weary, just like you or just like me, that's when the enemy will come full force with temptation. He pulls out His little bag of tricks, and He's going to attempt to tempt the Son of the living God. God incarnate. And the temptation here, it suggests that you know, your bodily needs are more important than the spiritual experience of trust in your Father. Much more important. But the, spirit, the spiritual experience of trust, what does it build in us? Character. Hope. Romans 5.3 says, Not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. Hope. He's our hope. We have hope in His Word. Jesus was hungry. And Satan comes and wants to attempt to appease the physical by questioning what God has already declared. Because if you read Matthew's account of the same incident, the same incident, when Jesus was baptized God the Father spoke from heaven and he said in Matthew chapter 3 verse 17 this is my son in whom I am well pleased so Satan slithers towards Christ physically weary and he says if if you are the Son of God turn the stone into bread take it in your own hands prove prove it prove your divinity Jesus was totally capable. It wasn't long after this, and Jesus turned water into wine. It wasn't long after this, and Jesus fed 5,000 men, who knows how many women and children, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25,000 people, multiplying bread and fish. Simple miracle. Raising Himself from the dead was simple, because He was God. Any miracle is simple for God. Anything, let alone turning a little stone to bread simple but Jesus answered he didn't say I'll show you he said it is written man shall not live by bread alone Jesus directly quotes Deuteronomy 8 3 you know Jesus said in John chapter 4 verse 34 my food is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work He's sitting at the well. Meets the woman at the well. Disciples go off into town to get some food. They come back. They're wondering, has He eaten anything? They're more concerned about Him being hungry. He was weary when He got to the well. Jesus had bigger plans. A bigger work to do. It was to work in the soul of a sinner. In John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to Me shall never hunger, and he who believes in Me shall never thirst. If you're not in Christ today... There's a part of your life that there's not fulfillment when you know it. That's a hunger, and that's a thirst that will not the thirst that will not be quenched, and a hunger that will but not be satisfied until one bows their life to Jesus Christ. He's the only sustaining hope you have. The only. If you sit here today and you believe that all roads lead to God, you've been lied to. All roads do not lead to God. You are not good enough to get to heaven. sin is not what you have done sin is what you haven't done and you haven't lived a sinless life that's the standard Christ is the only one who can fulfill the law of Christ fulfill the law of the Father see this temptation here questions God's provision and care God took care of the Israelites for 40 years in the desert their shoes didn't wear out they received manna food from heaven We still complain. This is we do, don't we? We're a bunch of whiners with an H W H I N E. Wine, we whine. We're no different. Question is how do we respond to tests? How how do we respond to struggles? Do we attempt to take control? Do we attempt to take things into our own hands rather than wait on God for the the spiritual strengthening He wants to do in us as we depend upon Him, right? Increasing our faith we walk by faith, without faith it's impossible to please God, but He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him, and the only ones who can diligently seek Him are the ones who are in Him. So when we diligently seek Him, it pleases Him. We seek Him by faith. He blesses us by increasing our faith. When God's refining you through circumstances, a lot of times that's relationally. Relationships with people when things don't go your way God's trying to get you to grow spiritually and more dependent upon him and less dependent upon yourself do you whine and complain take my toys go home I'm out of here right or do I say God what shall I learn from this trial what is it you're trying to teach me through this trial so that I may grow to be more like you this attractive suggestion to turn the stone into bread is the first of the three temptations that encompass all of man's sin in the world. The first one of which is lust of the flesh. And that's what all three of these temptations fall under. Lust of the flesh. Lust of the eyes. And the third one, the pride of life, which we'll see in a minute. In 1 John 2.16 says, All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but it's of the world. All sin falls under those three categories. Lust of the flesh, Lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Everything falls under those three. And then look at verse 5. Second temptation. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in what? A moment of time. This is some supernatural type of vision. A moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Here, here we have the lust of the eyes. First one was to appease the flesh, a physical hunger. Here's a lust of the eyes. All the power of all the kingdoms in the world is yours now if you'll bow down and worship before me. You know who had all power of all the kingdoms of all the world and still does? Satan. He's the apparent ruler of the world. He said, look, it's been delivered up to me. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God created man in His own image, and in His image He created the male and female, and He gave dominion Power, authority to Adam over the whole earth. When he sinned, he forfeited it, all of it. He forfeited it to Satan. Who has dominion and power and authority over the world? Satan. Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. In John chapter 16, verse 11, the ruler of this world is judged. See, he's defeated. Because of the cross. And He'll rule until the Lord Jesus Christ returns and sets up the the kingdom, the physical kingdom, and He will rule and reign, and we will rule and reign with Him. In John chapter 12, verse 31, Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. In John 14, verse 30, Jesus said, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. And he has nothing in me. Nothing. All of this will be yours. It's been delivered to me. I give it to whomever I want. See, Jesus would regain the title deed, so to speak, of the, of the earth, but only one way was through the cross. The hard road, the difficult road, the perfect life, the perfect ministry, the difficult ministry. And then the conclusion of it all, the cross. The capstone of our faith, the resurrection. No shortcuts, man. There were no shortcuts. So Jesus answers in Luke 4.8 by quoting Deuteronomy 6.13. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only you shall serve. So this temptation is an invitation to abandon the loyalty of the Father and worship Satan, bottom line. He's the Prince of the world. He's the Prince of the power of the air. People who are outside of Christ worship the Prince of the world. You and I used to worship the Prince of the world until the King of glory came and broke you and opened your eyes of understanding to where you now worship the King of the universe. Temporary King. Lies and deception. His kingdom is a fallen kingdom. A cursed kingdom. A temporal kingdom. Jesus says, no way. This temptation would have violated the very first commandment. Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. You know, here we go. We go after power that's not ours to go after. What's the temptation? To go gain and grab prestige and power, even people in ministry. They see someone has a large platform of ministry, they want to go grab onto some type of similar platform of ministry before God has prepared them for it. So they go grab on like guys who want to preach. I know I was called to preach soon after I became a Christian, but I know I didn't have to knock on anybody's door. Hey, I know I'm called to preach. Can you like set me up? You know what? If God calls you to it, He'll fulfill it. I need to reach out and grab for it. Because when you reach out and grab for it, nothing fits together. It's just a big mess. And they're like, Lord, help me get me out of this mess. I didn't want this in the first place. Yes, you did. And that's what the devil does. Pride, money. You know, here, I I want this power position. I want the corner office, man. I'll do whatever it takes to get it. Come on, right? That's the temptation. Going after things by sight. Things that appeal to the eyes. Gaining that, at whatever the cost. In the long run, you bow to Satan. Less of the eyes. So, you know, the devil oftentimes comes to people, believers even, obviously, this is the context, to offer him a little piece of power. A little piece of prestige, a little piece of fame. When in turn, they no longer depend upon the one in whom they worship, they end up worshiping themselves, which is to worship the devil. Lust of the eyes. That's the second of the three temptations, is the lust of the eyes. The kingdom is Christ. He wasn't going to take it. He knew it was his. He knew also that the devil was the temporary ruler. Temporary. Then he goes on to the third temptation, verse 9. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus and he answered and he said to him, It's been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And then the devil had ended every temptation. He departed from him until an opportune time. So the devil tries to defeat Satan with these first two temptations. Jesus cuts through him with truth, the sword of truth. He uses the Word of God to defeat the enemy both times. So the enemy now comes, and he goes, Okay, if I can't beat him, I'll join him. You've used scripture and I'll do the same. As a matter of fact, I'll use Psalm 91 that says, it is written, this is the devil, it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, jump, he'll keep you, jump, and in their hands they'll bear you up, jump, lest you dash your foot against the stone, jump, prove it, prove it. Third temptation is also vision-like. Jesus is taken to the temple, the southeast corner, known as the royal porch. The royal porch um, extended out over a cliff and it looked over the Kidron Valley like 450 feet below this porch. The first century historian Josephus said that people would look out over it and just become dizzy. So he's saying, jump. Prove you the Son of God. Jump. You'll get a following. If you jump and make it, you will have a following. Go ahead, prove it. You're the Son of God, prove it. It's to tempt God. He's defeated with Scripture, so he brings Scripture. The biggest fight of the enemy for the church is that on the inside. False teachers bringing the Scripture out of context. He used Scripture out of context. happens all the time. He misuses the Word of God. So the devil attempts to make his demonstration, this demonstration of Jesus jumping, to prove that he trusts God. Prove you trust Him, and let's see Him hold you up. This would have actually been an act of unbelief. Because you don't test the ones. You don't test the one who loves you. Especially God. We can show a lack of trust in God. Force Him to act on our behalf. How many times have you jumped into something? You just jump into it. You want to grab hold. You don't jump off buildings. None of us are that stupid, right? But we'll say, God, if you really love me, I know I've been disobedient all this time, but if you just let me get to the finish line of success here, and I know I'm living in sin right now, just let me get out the other side. Okay? Then, I'll do what you've been prompting me to do. Just get me through this. Now we're attempting to do what? Control God. And we're not called to control God. We're called to follow Him, you see. Trying to strong arm Him. Test Him. To move His hand. This is the pride of life. Pride of life. To To... Press God into doing something on our behalf to prove Himself. You know, people who want to press God into doing things, oftentimes the end result is not theirs and what they dreamed or hoped for. They're the ones that end up wagging their head and shaking their fist at God. It happens often. You can't control God. So here's the devil misquoting and misapplying God's Word. Okay, now, let's not forget who he's speaking to here. The devil's speaking to the Logos. The Word. The One who spoke. And the universe came into existence. The Word of God. The very thing that Satan is misquoting here is the very Word of Christ Himself. Man alive. You know, some Christians, though, come to the Bible, Lord, give me a word for the day. I'm, I'm waiting for you to speak to me, Jesus. And they open it up, and they open up to something like Matthew 27.5, and Judas departed from the temple, he went out and he hanged himself. And then they go, wow. God, that must not have been you, so they do it again. <clears throat> And they they turn the pages and they end up on Luke 10.37 Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise, right? (laughs) So there's a time of despair A time of doubt A time of discouragement And because we know that this is the sword But we don't know how to use the sword We misuse the sword And dishonor the author of the sword And misrepresent him Those two texts, by the way Matthew and Luke, have absolutely nothing to do with one another. Nothing. But people do that. They, some of these preachers today come up with this five weeks of this series they want to do, and they go, this is a great idea, this is a great idea, this is a great idea. Okay, now the problem is I just need to find a bunch of scripture to back up what I want to say. That's when you'll get a bunch of misquoted scripture. Happens regularly. And the only people that can detect it are the people that know how to use the Bechira. And then when you stand up and go, that is so out of context, well, you're so critical. (laughs) You're so detailed. You're so harsh. No, he's misrepresenting the truth of God. That's a problem. Habakkuk 1.5, listen to this. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. Now, imagine if I stood here and told you, this is the word of the Lord for you in this church. Be utterly astounded. I will work a work in your day which you would not believe. God has so many plans for us. God has so many plans for this church. It's bigger than we can even imagine. Do you believe it, brothers and sisters? (laughs) I have heard pastors quote that in regard to the great things that God's going to do in their ministry. However, pastors quote that. They're big building projects. And if you look at the context of the passage, it's the imminent, imminent judgment of God that is going to be so great that even if I told you, you wouldn't understand it or believe it. Come on, somebody. <laughs> Paul quotes that same text in Acts 13. And he pulls that text out To refer to people who reject Jesus Christ that they will suffer the same imminent judgment. You don't go using something like that and slap it on your little greeting card you stick in the bulletin. God's going to do a great work through you you would not understand it. You wouldn't believe it if even it were told you. That has nothing to do with that. That's a misuse. So that Jesus here, with the temptations of the devil answers the devil's eisegesis of the text with exegesis of the text. Eisegesis and exegesis is in there so you understand. Deuteronomy 6.16 he says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus wielded the sword here defensively and offensively. And what he did, what happened next? What did the devil do? He left. He departed. But not for long, brothers and sisters. You can stand in opposition of the enemy. You can wield the sword of truth. You can use it correctly. And he will flee. But the guarantee? He'll be back. In an opportune time. He will look for an opportune time. And if you look for an opportune time with the Son of the living God, God incarnate, he will find an opportune time with you and with me. Now then or now when the devil had ended every temptation he departed from him until an opportune time resist the devil and he will flee resist the devil he'll flee god has called us to write his word on the tablet of our heart in proverbs chapter 7 verse 3 and deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 6 to write it on the tablet of our heart we have to read it meditate on it we have to know its contextual meaning what does it mean by what it says Walter Martin wrote Kingdom of the Cults. Good to have in your library. He said this, and I quote the tragedy, the tragedy of Christianity is that a 90 day wonder out of the Jehovah's Witnesses can take apart a Christian in 30 minutes. How many of you are confident enough if they came up? Bring them on, bring them on brother. <laughs> we want everyone to say, bring them on to know the truth what you don't you don't need to go learn the lies of the cults know the truth so well know the truth so well first then you can go study the lies but know the truth when you got this truth you break that sword out and you'll be ready man to hack and whack away right to the heart of the lie the author of which is the devil himself just because you have a bible it doesn't mean you have a sword amen you can have one of those big old pretty white Bibles with a gold leaf sitting out on your front table and I come into your home and it's all dusted off. <laughs> it's open to Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5. And you not know what's in it? That is an ineffective sword. I don't care how big it is. John MacArthur said you could own a Bible bookstore and not have a sword. We must read it and meditate on it. Memorize it and wield it as the authority that it is. Living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Dividing the soul and spirit. We could get into that, but we do not have time. So, J.I. Packer, I'll quote him and then we'll wrap up. And in I in quote, in meditation, the whole man is engaged in deep and prayerful thought on the true meaning and the bearing of a particular passage. End quote. So, how do we help ourselves in this? How do we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ? How do we learn the context of Scripture? Some practical things. Take, do this. A lot of Christians will start in Genesis and read through Revelation. And they come with their hand up in the air at the end of the year. I read through the whole Bible this year. Sweet. Let's open up to Matthew 7, 1 through 5. What does that mean by what it says? You define it, describe it. No, that's wrong. It's great that you read through the Bible the whole year. That's good. But what I, my encouragement would be, read through the Old Testament. Just open and just read. Take your time, read through it. Take some notes. You don't understand something, take some notes. Take a New Testament book and study it in depth. Just a couple chapters. Take two, three, four chapters. Depending on your reading ability. Perhaps you're a good reader. You retain a lot. If you don't retain a lot, take less. Don't bite off more than you can chew. Read it. Notepad at the side. Write down a couple verses. Start memorizing those verses and understand when you memorize the verse what it means by what it says. What's the context of the verse in light of the context of the chapter, passage, then the chapter, chapter to the book. Set goals that are attainable in memorization. Don't, you know, okay, I'm all excited now, I'm going to memorize Romans in a month. Right? Then everyday life sets in and you get discouraged and you miss two days in a row and you go, ah, oh, forget it. Right? Take a couple verses. Get a friend. Pick a friend. Take a spouse. Take a family member. Take a passage of scripture and say, let's learn this together. This is what it says, this is what it means by what it says, let's memorize it together. It's challenging that way if you're if you don't if you're not disciplined enough to do it on your own. Memorize. Meditate. Ponder the text in its context. Because once you memorize it, then you're able to meditate on it. You're able to utter it over and over again in your mind and what it means by what it says. That's meditating on Scripture. Make good use of your time. Are you a big TV hog? Cut out some of that. Cut out some of it. And utilize the time to do what we've just defined here, just described here. Memorize some Scripture. Use idle time. When you're standing in line somewhere, take a book with you. Sermons are only as effective as is the amount of time the man at the pulpit spends expounding the scripture. I heard a guy on the radio the other day. I listened to him for about 12 minutes. And then I had to just turn it off. He's telling stories about himself, how fast of a runner he is. He's running so fast his tennis shoes started on fire and he's talking about God but he's not declaring scripture and what it means by what it says. It couldn't take any more. Books are only as useful as is the time spent to declare what the Word of God means to help you better understand it when you buy books like that. That's why we'll be selective. You won't see the big famous books and the bestsellers on our bookshelf. Get serious about the serious. Christianity isn't just Sundays, amen? We have to know the sword, man, so it will be effective. Take out little 3x5 cards, right out of the thing, keep them in your pocket. Take a book with you. Take scripture with you. So if you have dead time, you're standing in a line at a restaurant, the other day I was at Target, I always have a book with me. Always. The other day my wife all of a sudden had to go to Target with my daughter to get something for camp. We were out doing something else so I didn't have a book. So I guess I don't always have a book, do I? <laughs> oh, 15 minutes of just going insane. I felt like I was wasting time sitting in the parking lot because I didn't go into the store. If I went into the store, I wouldn't be wasting time because I would be cherishing the time with my wife and my daughter. (laughs) (laughs) If you submit to studying the sword of the Spirit, understand this. The sword is the Spirit's. And if you're in Christ. The Spirit is in you. And if you dedicate yourself to Him in the understanding of His sword, He will illuminate your understanding as Paul prayed in chapter 1 of Ephesians. Lord, give them understanding. Pray for understanding. Write down the things you don't know. Get a good study Bible that has good footnotes in it that will give you contextual clarity of the text. Invest it. 50, 60, 100 bucks, spend it. Invest. It's worth it. And finally, we're called to take up the whole armor. This is our last piece. May Jesus Christ Himself be our example in the text we looked at today, one who properly brandished the sword of truth. In Romans thirteen fourteen says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put him on, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfil its lusts. Your flesh will lust. We're not just talking about sexual lust here. There's a lust for a lot of things. Fame, fortune, all kinds of things. Prestige, all the things we talked about. There's a lot of things in how your flesh will lust, let alone just sexually. Put on Christ. Because you will be tempted. The lust will get stirred up. Pride will get stirred up. The lust of the eyes will get stirred up. The pride of life will get stirred up. Put on Christ. You know, if you think about this, put on the whole armor of God. Christ is the armor. And I close with this. Jesus Christ is our armor. We got the belt of truth. Jesus Christ is the truth. John 14:6, he said, "I am the truth." He's our righteousness. Breastplate of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5:21, he made him, God the Father made him Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. He's our peace. Shog your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. He Himself is our peace. He is Christ. He Himself is our peace. And then it's Christ's faithfulness that makes possible our faith in the first place. Galatians 2, 20 and 21. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. There's your shield. And He's our salvation. Simeon held little baby Jesus in the temple. When Joseph and Mary brought Him to the temple, He held Him and He said to the Father, My eyes have seen Your salvation. In Luke chapter 2, verse 30. He's our salvation. There's your helmet. And then finally, the sword, which is the Word of God. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. Verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. A little quote from Ligon Duncan. The hardest thing about going to the next level in ministry is that the road to the next level is always uphill. It's always uphill. Your faith walk is uphill. But He gives you the strength. He gives you the armor. And He gives you the sword, man, to cut through the lies of the enemy, the temptations of the enemy, and so on. So know what the word means by what it says. And it will be as sharp as that which it declares to be double-edged. Sharper than a double-edged sword. And then you will be one who will be able to, as Paul instructed Timothy, to rightly divide the word of truth. And it means to cut it straight. Amen? And then we'll be effective in standing against the wiles of the devil. Specific use of that sword for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for all that you have provided for us. Thank you for this church. I thank you for the individuals that make up this body of believers and the fact that you have called us out of darkness, that you indeed are the light, that you have shown the light, the darkness of our hearts, that you breathed life into us. We were born again by the Spirit of God. That you began a work in us that you promised to complete. And Lord, you've granted us this armor, so help us, Lord, to allow this truth to resonate in our hearts, in our minds, to properly apply each piece of the armor for your glory and for your honor. Help us in times of weakness, times of temptation, to lean on the promises of Scripture that there is no temptation to overtake you except such as common to every man. But with every temptation, you always leave the way of escape. And Lord, may we remember that when we are tempted by evil, it is not you who tempts with evil for God cannot be tempted with evil but each one of us is lured away and enticed by our own lustful desire. so help us to crucify them with the sword remembering you being crucified on the cross in our place and I pray that we would be a healthy unified body of believers who will uphold one another insist one another in, in brandishing this sword with effectiveness and learning it understanding the context of the truth of your word so that we'll be effective and and rightful representatives of you, Lord. We thank you. We praise you. And we pray today for those who've been pierced in the heart who don't know you to submit to you the cross of Christ, the blood that was shed, that they would have a stirring of their heart to repent, to call upon you, to surrender to you, and to not be fooled because they say Jesus with their mouth that they're saved if indeed they're not. May you birth life into them today by the power of your word, the power of your spirit, for the glory of the Father who comes through the Son. In Jesus' name, amen.